I've enjoyed this week, I've enjoyed a couple of things. Firstly, I've enjoyed having friends from New Zealand arrive. Uh, that's been a wonderful thing, so ladies, love to have you here. But um, more importantly, I've enjoyed watching the um, World Athletics Championships. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I enjoy all types of sport, and, uh, especially those world-type championships. Uh, in the next few months, you're probably going to hear me rabbit on a lot about the Rugby World Cup, but... I won't uh, do that this, this morning. I'll, I'll do something more generic because I know how much you all love rugby and I know how much that dominates your thinking. Uh, so we won't talk about that today, but, but I was viewing the World Athletic Championships and as you see men and women uh, endeavour to excel at a certain discipline, you know, whether it's high jump, pole vault, shot put, running, you name it. There's one thing that impacts me as I consider the years of training that's gone on before to get that to that position. The years and years of effort and discipline and hard work to achieve the goal of being the best in that discipline that the world has. That's the same with uh, many of you here. You, you've started your own businesses. We have a, a large portion of uh, self-employed folks in this congregation. And as you start up your, your own business, you, you've got all sorts of things to consider. Most importantly, cash flow. And then you'll have assets to consider. You'll have customers to consider. The ongoing... Uh, inputs to consider. You'll have safety to consider. And you'll make a plan. You'll, you'll tend to sit down and make a strategic plan, much like an athlete who, who sits down when they're five, six or seven and says, I want to be the fastest runner in the world, so therefore I'm going to train to do that. Similar in your business, you'll make a strategic plan. By year one, I hope to perhaps break even. By year two, I hope to have perhaps have enough customers and enough skill to, to provide a standard of living. By year three, I want to employ extra people. By year four, I want to do this, that and the other thing. And by year eight, I want to sit back and do nothing and just watch my business grow. That's the planning and, and strategy that goes into that type of thing. As a student, you may be sitting here and, and believe it or not, you are probably planning as well. You're thinking, okay, well, VCE happens in about eight weeks' time. I better start studying. Or if you're a wise student, you've probably thought, oh, I've actually studied a little bit earlier. I've started to head. You're, you're thinking about uh, the qualification. You're learning the skills. You're, you're thinking, one day when I finish this four years of servitude to the Master of Education, I'll actually be able to get a job. I'll actually be able to pay my own way. And I see many parents saying hallelujah. And, you know, that, that's, you begin with the end in mind. Even when you think about retirement, you're beginning with the end in mind. You say, from day one, I'm going to start saving. So by 65, 
I have enough asset to actually live and enjoy my retirement. You see, that's an important, wise principle, beginning with the end in mind. And as we work through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already touched on this. He's touched on it in his last call to discipleship in chapter 14. He says, if you want to follow me and take up my cross and follow me, you've got to realize the cost of that. You begin with the end in mind. He even uses a little parable in there and he says, what builder does not consider the cost of laying a foundation, of laying a building? What builder does not consider whether he can finish the job? Because he'd be known as a fool if he couldn't. And so Jesus now in Luke 16, if you'd like to turn to Luke 16, is instructing his disciples once more. He's just completed a fairly major instruction to the Pharisees as the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near and he was saying, do you rejoice in the fact that a sinner is lost and is found? And now Jesus turns to his disciples. So let's read the first 13 verses of chapter 16. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Uh, that's not black gold oil, we're talking olive oil here, folks. Okay, so 100 measures of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much uh, do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. If that was your experience, how would you respond? as the master of the house. How would you respond if the bills had just been halved and reduced by 20%? Because I think this response is amazing as I read it. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful is, uh, in a very little is also faithful in much. And 
One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We have a story here which is a fascinating story. The audience is the disciples. It's another call by Jesus to what it means to be a disciple and a follower of him. And he grabs this parable about a dishonest manager. It's come to the master's attention that the the man has been unwise, dishonest in his dealings with the with the master's wealth and farm. And this is farm because uh, we know that the produce of the farm is one, olive oil, and secondly, wheat. And we know from the, the context of this passage that it wasn't a small hobby farm. This was quite a significant enterprise. You see, the amount of olive oil here is estimated at somewhere around probably 875 gallons or in uh, modern terms, about 3,325 litres. It's a large portion of olive oil. There's a lot of bread dipping and balsamic going into that. And the second portion of wheat is also calculated around 12 bushels, which by volume is around 400 litres, depending on the weight. Uh, Quite considerable kilos of, of wheat. And you see, this dishonest manager has got a real, real problem. Because he's been off the tools for years. He's got a little bit soft. His hands are not used to hard work. And he realizes his predicament. He doesn't try and counter the charges. He just says, okay, what am I to do now that I've been found out? We're not sure what he did. The text does not tell us. But we do know that he is considering options. And the options he considers are, well, shall I go dig holes for a living? He gets up out of his chair probably rather slowly because he probably has a few extra kilos around his waist as as you would in this type of position. He looks at his hands and he thinks, oh, I can't dig. And by the way, digging in that culture was a very, very medial task. It's probably akin to being an accountant in our culture. No, I'm joking. Uh, no, it's more medial than that. It's a very medial task. Digging was considered the lowest form of labor. And he... Uh, He says, no, I I can't dig. I definitely can't beg. What will people think? I've been the manager of this amazing estate and farm that is producing abundantly well. I've got 50 staff who I look after. 
Yeah, sure, I've been pocketing a little bit of the profit myself. Sure, I've been taking on some of the, the things I shouldn't. And yes, I've been a little dishonest, but I definitely can't dig. My hands are too soft and I'm definitely too proud to beg. So what will I do? So what does he do? You've read the text. He calls in the guys that owe him the most. And he says, oh, yeah, you owe me a lot of money for, for these uh, 3,325 litres of olive oil. Yeah, we've sort of let the debt slide for a number of months, but you know, I think it's time to pay the debt up. But, you know, as steward and as a, a steward and manager of his master, he had this right to manage all these aspects. So what he did is he, he decided, I'm going to cut a deal here. Hey, it was $100 a litre. It's now $50 a litre. If you were the man who owed the money, how would you feel? That would be like the bank saying to you, where's your credit card statement? I'm just going to tear it in half. Or taking your mortgage and saying, you owe me 100000 on now it's only fifty. You'd be kind of grateful, wouldn't you? I think you'd be kind of grateful. I'd be kind of grateful. And then he says to his second uh, debtor, okay, you owe me a little bit of money for the wheat. How about you just pay, we'll, we'll cut a deal, take 20% off. You know, the wheat price is dropping. It's, uh, you know, I know it's hard for you to, to make, make ends meet, but here, this is a real sweetheart deal for you. Take 20% off. Let's settle it here and now. So he does. You see, his motive here is uh, to feather his own nest. His motive here is to think about, I have a, a future, I need to be employed, I'm going to be as shrewd as I can to try and prosper my future employment opportunities. See, the way he reduced this debt could be one of three options. He could have simply just lowered the price or, according to the Mosaic Law, you could charge interest on, on debts like this, uh, so he, he could have actually just said, okay, I'm just going to reduce the interest. Because olive oil was a higher priced item, interest would have been higher and wheat was lower priced item, so hence the difference in, in reduction. Or, which is pretty common in commercial aspects of this time, he could have just said, I'm going to remove my own commission." As a steward and manager of, of this property, he would have a right to have commission on top of sales. So he could just sacrifice his own portion, not that of the master. I tend to favour those last two options. I just don't think he cut the price because he was being shrewd. He was trying to still stay in with his master and yet look for future employment opportunities. 
and the master's response. Notice the master does not commend his dishonesty. The master does not condemn the fact that he has actually discounted the items. That's not in our text. But what the master does say is you're very shrewd. You're a shrewd man. And then Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So what does it mean to be shrewd? It's not a term we commonly use today, is it? I haven't heard, you know, as I look through CVs, for, or I used to look through CVs uh, when I used to employ people, it wasn't the highest characteristic. You know, you'd have honesty, trustworthiness, you'd have a great family man, etc., etc. Shrewdness never seemed to appear at the top of the list. But this master says, okay, you have been very shrewd. The Webster's Dictionary says, um, we would describe this as being able or clever in practical affairs. That would describe what's going on here. Uh, Sharp in business, astute, sharp-witted. And this really surprised me because the Webster's Dictionary edition I had was 1901 and it had a definition for shrewdness as keen as. <laughs> go figure. Webster's got it right. If you go back to the root meaning in, in the Greek, it, it has the same sense. That to be shrewd means to be a steward or a manager, someone who is trusted Sorry, to be shrewd is to show great wisdom and great insight, someone who's sensible, thoughtful, prudent, and wise. So he's commending him for this. And then Jesus gives the reason and explains the parable to his disciples. You know, in this story, this man, this man of the world, shows more shrewdness with this interaction than do the sons of light. What does that mean? He's hammering a home, a point to his disciples. So what does this mean? I think it comes down to a couple of things and it's answered in the text here. God's children who have a heavenly future should be diligent in assessing the long-term effect of their actions. Those who are followers of Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who are disciples of Christ, we should always be mindful that what's been entrusted to us is to be used for God's glory. Jesus explains it this way. He says, I tell you, make 
friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, or make friends for yourself by using your money generously. It's a principle of generosity. So that when it fails, notice that, money does fail, folks. Let's not be uh, uneducated in this fact. If our security is in money, your security is in the wrong thing. Money fails. How many billion dollars got wiped off the share market this week? If you're travelling overseas, your once proud Australian dollar that bought a dollar US now buys 70 cents. Folks, money fails. Jesus is making this point that it will fail. But what you're entrusted with, the money that you're entrusted with, be generous with it. So you may be received an eternal dwelling. So you may hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The second thing Jesus says is, if you are faithful in a little, you will be faithful in much. Be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in service of the king. I think it's wonderful we are incredibly blessed in this church because we have people who are consistently faithful in the small things. We've got 60, 70, 80 kids in the buildings around us who are being taught faithfully the word of God. As parents, be faithful in teaching your kids the word of God. If God blesses you with financial prosperity, be faithful with that. Because there's a promise here. If you are faithful in the little things, then you'll be entrusted true riches. In the context of this particular passage, I think Jesus is talking about the fact that true spiritual blessing, true things, will be your future service in the kingdom. So when you are generous, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the fact that I am a steward of God's blessing. All I have is his. Move away from the mentality that when you tithe, if you do tithe money, that that's God's portion. Folks, it's all his. Be generous. Begin with the end in mind. When it comes to being faithful, begin with the end in mind because faithfulness on this earth will result in future blessing in the coming kingdom. And finally, Jesus says in this part of the parable, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of his, remember he is talking to the disciples, he's using this parable, he's saying serve God. You can't have divided loyalty. There's no such thing as divided loyalty. Serve 
God. So begin with the end in mind. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, determined to serve him wholeheartedly for the rest of your days. And then Jesus, as he does, he turns to the Pharisees. Let's read the next four verses. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus now turns to the Pharisees. He's just given this wonderful instruction to his disciples, and he turns to his Pharisees. And just notice what he says. Firstly, what the Pharisees say, they ridicule him. They scorn him. The word here is the same thing they did when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross and they said, he saved others, let him save himself. That's the type of scorn and hate that's embedded in this saying. They ridiculed him. Why? Jesus says, because they were lovers of money. They were serving money more than God. In the context of chapter 16. And then he warns them. I'm going to very briefly go through these four four verses. He warns them. He says, God is looking at your heart. God knows your heart. And this is not just some speculation. God knows our hearts. He knows what we place on the idol of our hearts, whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's possessions. God knows our heart. And Jesus says to them, don't justify yourself because God knows your heart, your pride and your arrogance will not win out. Self-justification and pride are condemned by God. And that's what he's honing in on here with the Pharisees who are lovers of money. And he talks openly about to the Pharisees, a new time is here. The prophets have passed. John is the bridge between the two eras. The kingdom of God is being preached. And people are coming and forcing their way into the kingdom because they're accepting me. And do you know what? The law is still significant. There is an enduring significance in the law even though a time is passing because I am the fulfillment of the law. That's what Jesus is saying. And then by way of example, he gives a one-liner. He says, I'll give you an example of why the law is still significant. And he uses this verse, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. These words here are used in what we call absolute terms. Divorce that leads to adultery is 
because there's a presupposition going on amongst the Pharisees. The presupposition is if I don't like the look of my wife and I like the look of that woman over there, I'm going to divorce her because I want that. That's what's going on here and this is why he's using this against the Pharisees in the context of these passages. And he, he said, the promise and the vow of marriage is still God's standard. And if you continue this practice, you're, it's representing an act of unfaithfulness to the original vow. Jesus in this particular verse is not setting up every possible example or possible scenario. He's just saying this is the basic principle. This is the basic principle. And especially in the context of and talking to the Pharisees. And then he further moves on, and he tells another parable which we will read in verse 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted scrumptiously every day. Well, not scrumptiously. Sumptuously. I was thinking of a lamb roast. He was feasting sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Don't miss the significance of Jesus talking this parable to the Pharisees. We started in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, who feasted scrumptiously, or whatever other word you want to use, every day. Jesus is making a direct correlation to the men he is talking to. You lovers of money are just like this rich man. In your current life, you're using the wealth that God has given you 
to feed yourself. Do you know, as Pharisees, if you had read the law properly, if you had understood Deuteronomy chapter 24, 10 to 22, you would understand that you would be compassionate and mercy upon the poor. You would have had compassionate and mercy upon Lazarus. But you failed to. So this picture is just like you. You men who loved money. And then we have this dialogue that goes on between the rich man and Abraham. As you read through the dialogue, the, the key principle that keeps coming out is you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You've lived this life full of luxury. You've lived this life full of fine linen. You've got the best labeled clothes in the world. You're feeding on olive oil, you're feeding on wheat, you're feeding on scallops, you're feeding on lamb. Not once a week, but every day. You're living this life and you're not beginning with the end in mind. Because we have a picture of the end. Judgment has been passed. There is a great chasm between the two. Please note in the text it says this has been fixed. When judgment is passed by the process of death, judgment is fixed. No such thing as purgatory. No such thing as trying to pray our loved ones from one side to the other. The text does not tell us that. It's just bad theology. Judgment has occurred, fixed, established. And there is no crossing over between the chasms, neither from here to there or there to here. That's what Abraham says. When God renders judgment, it is permanent. That's the principle. When God says you come to faith in Christ, and you have eternal life, and you accept that, it is permanent. You can glory in the fact that you are saved and you have an eternal home in heaven. However, if you reject that, the same applies. If you reject that, judgment is past and it is permanent. A place of torment a place separated from God, God's love, grace, and mercy. See, reversals are not possible in the afterlife. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Life you live now, the decisions you make now to either follow Jesus or reject him, has eternal consequences. Then the rich man realizes that his arguing about moving across the chasm is pointless. And he goes, Father Abraham, will you remember my five brothers? They're in my father's house. 
They too were probably living a fairly good lifestyle, one would think. They're probably scrumptiously enjoying the lamb roast. The wine, the parting, the branded clothes. Send someone to them so they can be warned. Abraham and Jesus through this parable, referring to the Pharisees, well, <laughs> how many prophets must I send? Really? How many prophets must be sent for them to understand? I have sent Moses and the prophets. They explain the way of salvation. You see, if the heart is not changed, the heart will not be transformed. Your five brothers will still sit there. They may see someone who has risen from the dead, i.e. Lazarus, because that's what he says. Please send somebody. Please send Lazarus. Send him to tell them and warn them. Yeah, how would that go down? The beggar at the gate is actually knocking on the door and saying, hey, um, if you don't get your life sorted out, you're going to end up with your brothers. And Jesus makes this point, well, I've already sent the warning. So if I send Lazarus, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. Their hearts are still hardened. Their hearts are still hardened. So in conclusion, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're just like the rich man. You have the law and the prophets. You're more concerned about sumptuous living. You're more concerned about fine clothing. You break the laws where it suits you, i.e. in divorce, i.e. when it's feeding the poor. That's what you're concerned about. But your hearts are far from me. Be like the disciples who are shrewd with their money. Not like the Pharisees who are wasteful. Disciples who are shrewd will be generous. They'll be faithful. They'll serve God only. Begin with the end in mind. Be shrewd with what God has entrusted to you. Be faithful, generous, and serve God only. And if you're here today like the picture of this rich person who is in a place of great torment because you haven't seen what Christ offers. Christ's message of the kingdom is if you believe in me, you will be saved. It's a thing of grace. It's not a thing of works. It's not about putting your tithe in the plate. It's not about doing some materials work. It's God's grace that can change your heart 
God's into heart transformation. And if you don't understand this message, please talk to us. Because we want you to begin with the end in mind and realize that whatever happens on earth has eternal consequences. It's the same for discipleship as we follow Jesus. And it's the same if we do not know Jesus. So folks, begin with the end in mind. This week, do an inventory of where your heart's at. Think about the material wealth and riches that you enjoy here in Australia. Think about that. Look at your bank statements, look at your credit card statements and determine where is my heart. And you say, well, that's a funny thing to say where your heart is. Well, your heart will be determined by where you spend. Is your heart generous? Is it faithful? Does it serve God only with your wealth? Pour over these scriptures this week. Pour over this. Think of people who you know who are like the rich man. Pray for them. Pray that God will do a transformation in their heart and have an opportunity to speak to them about begin with the end in mind. Folks, we're all on mission. If we're followers of Christ, we're all on mission. And it's our role to proclaim Jesus. Begin with the end in mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful instruction here in Luke 16. Father, help us to be wise stewards. Help us to be men and women who love you, who serve you wholeheartedly. Father, who proclaim the good news of Jesus to our friends, to our neighbours, to our work colleagues, to our family. Lord, give us the power through your spirit, by your grace, to serve you in this way. Help us to be generous. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be men and women who, uh, who consider the cost of following you. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.